Hello and welcome to another edition of The Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with my co-host, Paul Nicolini, Regional Director from Harbor City Capital. And uh, we've got another exciting guest today. I tell you what, kudos out to our team, both you, Paul, and Daniel Penaranda on our team that have been lining up some excellent guests for these episodes for season one of The Deal Flow Show. So we've got another exciting guest here today. And this is not just someone we invited on to share some knowledge, although she's going to have stacked knowledge for you. This is someone that we have actually put our money where our mouth is and hired as one of our providers and part of our team. And that person is Laura Anthony from Anthony LG. She is a law, uh, an attorney, a lawyer out of South Florida. And we're going to get her to tell us a little bit more about herself and her firm and then we're going to jump into some of the deal maker questions and talk about the deal flow process as it relates to their firm. So, Paul, I'm going to let you lead off today. Well, this is an easy one to start off. Uh, what made you get into law, Laura? And then specifically, what kind of law do you practice? So I always wanted to be a lawyer since I was five years old. So then that never changed. I always knew I'd be a lawyer. And, uh, and I always knew I'd be a business lawyer, which is what I am. I'm business, corporate, and securities. I was the kid that, although I like to have fun, I also loved the Wall Street Journal and anything dealing with business. My father was a business owner and entrepreneur, and I was always very interested in what was happening in, in his world and in the world of entrepreneurs. And so with that said, I practice uh, corporate securities and business transactions. We have, if I was going to, to uh, put our firm into a couple of buckets, I'd say the one bucket, which is the, the largest bucket probably is our securities practice. We, uh, we represent public companies, companies that intend to go public, doing corporate finance and, and capital market transactions. We do general corporate work, which can be contracts, licensing agreements, employment agreements. Uh, and then we do, a, we have a robust M&A, merger and acquisition practice as well. But, you know, our, our bread and butter, I think, is, is offerings and public offerings, follow-on offerings, private offerings, capital market transactions. What do you think, and I don't even know if this was on here today, but what do you think is the most exciting or uh, unique and, and really, uh, I guess, gaining momentum thing in the capital markets today in terms of y'all's law practice, but capital raising methods and programs? Sure. You know, interestingly, I was very concerned when COVID first hit, just like the rest of the world was. I spent a couple of weeks kind of going through motions and staring into the corner thinking, wow, what is going to happen to our world and to the business world? But very interestingly, not only did business not slow down, but I had a real uptick in calls beginning right away from really decent companies that had been planning to do an IPO, say, here in 2020 or Q1 or Q2 2021, and they're, they're, they decided to pivot a little bit and look at going public in a different way, such as a reverse merger or a SPAC deal. I have never seen the SPAC market in, I've been practicing since 1993, so it's been a minute, and I have never seen the SPAC market as busy as, as it is right now. And I'm not, you know, in, in addition to the, the very large SPACs that we hear about, the, the uh, record-setting billion and $2 billion SPACs, there is a plethora of 30, 40, and $50 million SPACs, and they're looking for acquisition opportunities. And, and the markets are booming. I mean, 
you know, they have not slowed down and, and quite the opposite. I've, you know, we're, we're as busy as ever and everybody I know in the capital markets is as busy as ever. Can you give a little bit of back? Sorry, I know no, you're, no, we're you're both excited ready. about this, <laughs> this topic. Well, we got into this topic with John on our conference call with John and Chad the other day from y'all's office. So I, the SPAC thing is very interesting to me. I um, was exposed to it. When was Josh with us? Uh, maybe last fall, late summer, last fall. I ended up in a meeting in South Florida with a guy who was doing SPACs. And some pretty decent size, you know. I think they went out to, and this particular one ran out to raise like 270, and ended up raising like 300, 310 million in 10 days in Europe. And he was talking about the appetite among the investment and banking community for the SPACs. I know a lot of people may know a lot about SPACs. I don't know, but I know there's a lot of myths surrounding them. Can you walk us through? maybe a little bit of the background of a SPAC and, and then how you're seeing them best used in today's environment. Sure. So a SPAC, it's S-P-A-C, and it stands for a Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. Okay. And then what happens is you have a sponsor. The sponsor has to come up with 10% of the cash. So when you see a $270 million or $300 million SPAC, you have a sponsor, someone behind it that's actually had, that's quite liquid, right? That's come up with 10% of that money. And sometimes even more. Sometimes the sponsor will put extra into the kitty to, to help make sure that the SPAC deal is successful. Okay. So what happens is you do an IPO with this blank check company. Its, it's purpose is to find an acquisition. It can be industry specific. You might have somebody, for example, that's very successful in pharma or biotech or, or aeronautics or, you know, but it can be that kind of specific where they create a SPAC. They know that they have a lot of contacts in that industry and that they're hoping they can go out and acquire somebody once they've raised all this money right? Or it can be completely industry agnostic. You can have somebody, which this happens a lot too, especially with bankers. A lot of bankers create SPACs. When I say bankers, I mean broker dealers create SPACs with no specific industry or acquisition targets. You would never have an actual target, but no specific industry in mind. And you go out and you raise money. You start to trade on a national exchange. And all the money that you raise, except for that 10% that the sponsor used to cover the cost of going public, sits in an escrow account, okay, until there is an actual acquisition. Now, a SPAC trades, and a lot of people trade on the arbitrage or potential while that SPAC is trading, right, where there's no business in it, and you have a very specific amount of time in order to acquire a business. When you find a business to acquire, all of the shareholders that hold at the time of that that you acquire that business, so it may or may not be someone that was in the initial IPO because somebody could have traded out, but all the shareholders that are in it at the time that you're going to make that acquisition have an opportunity to vote on the acquisition. And they can vote for the acquisition and continue to be a shareholder after the acquisition, or they can... Uh, vote against it and ask to have their money redeemed and they'll get their money back right based on the value of the money that's in escrow at the time that they redeem and uh and and then you know if the if you don't make the acquisition within the time allotted by statute then also all of the money goes back the SPAC folds and it stops trading so 
in today's world, there's a lot of M&A opportunity. Pharma is very hot. Uh, there's a lot of businesses that were now that we know now we know that were uh, undercapitalized or had a business model that wasn't uh, ready to sustain an interruption like COVID-19 has caused, and that creates buyer buying opportunities. Especially, you know, if you think that you can manage the business better, or you know, you can maybe if it's a conglomerate, you can maybe sell off pieces. But but there's a lot of opportunity to purchase those business, and for the private business, that's a way to go public, right? They, in essence, a SPAC transaction is a reverse merger transaction. You acquire that business, bringing it public, and the team that runs that private business now becomes the management and the controlling team of the SPAC entity, which you know was just a shell. It was it was there to make an acquisition. So it's it's just a different way to go public. Uh, the benefit for the private company is, of course, it can be faster to go public than a full IPO. And the other benefit is that there is ostensibly cash in the SPAC. It's raised a lot of money. Now, in reality, a lot of people cash out when the acquisition is made. They actually were there for the arbitrage situation itself. So in reality, there isn't usually as much, as much cash in the, in the SPAC as you would think, but you know, it's still a very great way to go public and then you're trading on a national exchange. And as long as you have followed the rules properly, you traded on that national exchange, you don't have the shell company stigma that can emanate from a company that was really truly a shell and then made an acquisition in a reverse merger. How often do you see um, a SPAC being used for a single acquisition versus like a roll-up, which was the conversation we had this week earlier with John and Chad. Always, because, you know, a roll, it's rare that you're going to have a concurrent roll-up, right? It's rare that you're going to have a closing on a SPAC deal where you're simultaneously closing on five businesses at one time, right? So it may be a roll-up strategy, but you're going to start with one, and you're going to get your shareholders to agree to that one. That one will meet the requirements of the value, and then you can proceed to, to roll up the rest of the businesses. As a public entity then, right? As a public entity. That's right. So you could go out there and swing for the fences on that first transaction. It'd be a larger transaction, gives you some momentum, as well as the liquidity of being public. Right. And you can have, I mean, you certainly can have letters of intent with additional acquisitions. You know, maybe you close two simulta simultaneously, but, you know, more often you're going to have the one that you're closing on and then you're going to engage in your roll-up strategy. Is the you you had mentioned uh, national exchanges? Is this for listed and non-listed? So uh, a SPAC could be on a Nasdaq or, or on the big board. It can be on the Nasdaq, the NYSE American, or even the big board. Right? Uh, it, it, on OTC markets, it can get onto the OTC QX tier of OTC markets, though that's fairly rare. It does not qualify at all for the QB or the pink sheet. So you're not you're not really going to see a, a trading spec. That is, you know, there's. There's another way to do, it's called Rule 419, and, and there's another way to put some money in, in, in escrow and some shares in escrow on OTC markets, but those vehicles don't trade. So, you know, it really is a national exchange deal. I want to shift gears a little bit because there's another um, regulation that y'all are well known for, 
I think when we talked the first time, you said maybe top three, top five firm in terms of volume of these, and that's Regulation A, Reg A. Uh, not to be confused with Reg A, man. Reg A. <laughs> but Reg A. Um, talk a little bit about <laughs> exactly. Talk a little bit about that and um, how you're seeing the velocity of that increasing, staying the same, etc. It's very hot. So. When reg a, Regulation A, the, the Regulation A that exists today, some people call it Regulation A+, plus, but you know, Regulation A as it exists today with its two tiers, once that was passed and came into fruition from the JOBS Act, it was very hot, right? A lot of companies were doing Reg A deals, including using them as a methodology to go public and go public on national exchanges. Everybody jumped in. And the reason everybody jumped in, by the way, is the same reason why it's hot now today, and that's because you can do testing the waters. You can really advertise and solicit, and you can build the market for your, your offering, which is the exact opposite of really what you can do when you're doing a traditional IPO with an S1. Even when you are allowed to do test the waters with a traditional IPO uh, with an S1, it's very limited. You can only speak to qualified institutional buyers or institutional level accredited investors. So, you know, it's very limited. Reggae, you can get out there and, and shout it from the rooftop which is a great thing. But what people discovered is that because it's rare that a Reg A is a firm commitment offering and it closes differently than a regular IPO. It closes like a private placement. People write checks, they put their money into the account. When it closes, that money is dispersed. In a traditional IPO, money that it's closed through the banker syndicate account and it's a T plus two closing through the DTC system and their syndicate account, just like a, a settlement of a stock trade. So there's a bit of a difference in the closing. And I think that took the markets a little bit by surprise when they realized. And without firm commitment offerings, there was no green shoe or over allotment. So your bankers didn't have the incentive nor the ability really within their parameters to support the deal in the aftermarket. So you had a situation where a lot of the deals went down in the aftermarket and everybody took a step back and they became less popular for a period of time. But now, you know, I think that, that people understand the way it works and it has such a great, I mean, there's so many models that it's great for besides an IPO. It's now available to already public companies. When it first was enacted, it was not. And so it's used a lot as a follow-on offering method, but it's also used a lot in, for alternative assets, real estate, works of art, cars, um, you, you know, it's a great way to do, to issue tokens that are on the blockchain, like cryptocurrencies, you know, so it's, it's really great for alternative assets too, you know, besides your regular common stock or, you know, regular stock, you know, debt, people use it for debt. So I think it's fantastic. I was going to ask, uh, Laura, what's the difference between the tier one and tier two, Reg? So a tier one is limited to number one, 20 million, but a tier one does not preempt state law. Truthfully, I see very little use in my world for my clients for a tier one offering. If you want to sell, and if you're, if you're strictly selling in one state, possibly two, then tier one may be great for you. But if you want to sell in multiple states, just the blue sky process itself would be make it cost prohibitive. You might as well get your audits. And then even though the SEC doesn't require an audit for a tier one, every state has a different review process 
process. And I find that some states, they'll look at the merits of the offering and some states will require that you have audited financial statements or that you limit, you put uh, uh, investor limits in such as, um, you know, sophistication levels or accreditation levels, which kind of takes away the benefit of going through that process with the SEC anyway, right? So, you know, I really don't have a lot of use for tier one. I'm, you know, I'm a, a tier two advocate and, and uh, in very, very rare circumstances do I think tier one has any use at all. Paul was brought on board at Harbor City based on 25 years background in the broker-dealer community and um, his experience as a broker-dealer, his network and, and all, um, specifically to help roll out Harbor City's opportunities to that community. My question is, are you seeing the Reg A being widely accepted within the BD community and or RIA advisor community? Um, as offerings, or is this pretty much just a direct-to-consumer, direct-to-investor type of opportunity primarily? It's a good question. Um, a lot of people do it as direct-to-consumer, direct, you know, without the, a broker-dealer involved, or at least without a broker-dealer being uh, uh, heavily involved. You know, there, there's certain uses for broker-dealer to do administrative and back office and AML, anti-money laundering checks for you and things like that. But there's a lot of people out there that are service providers to the Reg A space and th that provide... Uh, the back provide administrative software and technology because a reggae offering is really internet based. So you have to have a place where somebody can go, whether it's a platform that exists with multiple offerings on it, or whether or not you've white labeled and created your own platform, i.e. web page. They have to have a way to process documents, to sign documents, to pay, to wire money or, or, or put through a credit card charge to pay if they're actually making an investment. So there are a lot of service providers that handle that kind of thing, the technology base. There's also a lot of service providers that help you market the deal. So you don't have to have a broker dealer, but as far as broker dealers, there are broker dealers that are very interested in the reggae space. But a lot of the traditional broker dealers that jumped in right away and then saw that it didn't work in their own traditional way, you know, maybe they're not as hot on the market for it any, as, as others, but, but there are plenty of broker dealers that just love the reggae space, love the technology, and they're in it. I'm sure you, I want to shift gears just a little bit because one of the things we're doing as a result of the content from the Deal Flow show is creating a book called Deal Makers, Deal Breakers. So we're going to be talking about the strategies, the tactics, the principles, um, the tips, how deal makers like yourself operate within the space and some of the things that you do in that process. So here's my question. When you come to the table, obviously as an attorney, you're very concerned about specific details in, in an opportunity. But when you're vetting an opportunity for a client or to potentially take on a client, what are some of the things that you're looking for? Take us through your mindset and your process of identifying the, you know, the, the pimples on the deal kind of thing and then finding out if this is a deal that y'all want to be involved with. Well, I mean, basics, right? Are the, is the client 
realistic and sophisticated, right? So sometimes I get, and more so, thankfully, you know, the longer I practice, the more my firm has been successful. We've been in business 20 years next year. So, you know, we have quite a reputation and a following, but, you know, a lot, sometimes you get somebody that comes to the table and they really are not sophisticated. They're never going to understand the process. They're going to be uh, even if you tell them how much it's going to cost to do an offering, they're going to be in shock the whole way. And I, and I just see that they don't have a strong management team and organization. And I become very concerned at that point because I'm like, I don't want to just take their money and have an unhappy client and have an unhappy situation. And you can see that it's not likely that that offering is going to succeed, right? Because they don't have that knowledge behind them or, or really the ability to carry it from A to B. So I will, I will tell somebody that they should slow down, raise some money privately, do some friends and family and get their business model going right? Um, another way that a, the person can be unrealistic, and you know, I hate to say this, but it's true, is I love when somebody comes in and has this hockey stick of projections. And they might be middle-aged, and they think that they have the greatest idea since sliced bread, and they're going to grow this into a hundred or two hundred million dollar company in 12 months, right? Well, of course, we've never seen bad projections, just bad historicals. So, you know, okay, great. But, you know, one of the things I'll ask them is, have you ever had a successful exit? Have you ever run a three or $5 million business, let alone a $100 million business? Do you have resources to get a strong C-suite of executives? I mean, people may think they have a brilliant idea and it can grow, but execution requires extremely hard work and it requires, you know, there's a lot of times when you're growing a business that you need to make difficult decisions and you need a strong management team and somebody that thinks that they just have a great idea but doesn't have that that th those other pieces in place, they're just setting them up for failure you know, and for themselves for failure. Uh, crazy valuations are something that I keep my eye out for. Um, you know, just things, you know, I, you know, I mean, there are certain things you just, you just know it's not going to work, right? So you look for that. You try to guide them as best you can. But the most important thing for an entrepreneur is to be able to execute on their business model. They can't, an entrepreneur is not a capital markets, in the capital markets business. They're in the business that they're in. And if they forget that and they think that they're in the capital markets business, their business will never succeed. They raise capital to execute on their business model. They're not in the business of raising capital and they need to be clear about that. Laura, how has the, um, the whole process, the deal-making process changed in the digital era, digital space compared to the traditional way? Well, I mean, certainly, and you'll see, you know, I write a blog, you'll see my blog that goes out today at two, every Tuesday at two, there's a plug. Uh, you'll see that I'm talking about the virtual roadshow and a COVID IPO. So certainly, even before COVID, uh, the ability to have virtual meetings in Zoom and, and all of that really made, uh, and technology in itself made it so you could work anywhere. You didn't have to spend all of your day on a plane. You know, you could, uh, you can check your emails anywhere so you can be more fluid. And, and that's become even more important today where we have COVID, you know, virtual, the virtual roadshows are exactly what's happening. And, and although I think there will be a time when you have in-person meetings again, in fact, I know I have some clients that that 
already do, you know, but maybe not in groups like like you would in a road show. There will be a time, I think, where you'll go back to doing some regular road show meetings. I really firmly believe that a virtual road show is going to be here to stay forever. Maybe not as the sole method, but rather than traveling, if you're doing an IPO or or a a non deal road show or a follow on offering road show, rather than traveling to 15 cities in 15 days, I think you're going to pick three or four of the biggest cities and you can maybe travel there with the biggest crowds and the rest can be virtual. Yes, it certainly seems more cost effective, right? And it hasn't. Now, maybe it's a sign of the times, but all of the deals that all of the IPOs in 2020 okay, that have got, had virtual IPO, virtual roadshows, they've all priced in the middle to upper end of their range. So it's not hurting the valuations of the prices of the IPOs. It's not slowing anything down. You know, maybe if they were the only one during a, doing a virtual roadshow, you know, there might be a little more impact. But right now, it's not hurting anything. I think people are comfortable and used to Zoom and are actually thinking or bring whatever technology they're using. But, but I think that people realize that they can be very productive when they're not spending days on a plane and living out of hotel rooms. I agree. I think it's a paradigm shift. Um, sitting in our studio today is Jay Benoit. He's our chief technology officer, but he's a longtime friend. And he and I both come out of the digital space together. We did a lot. And I started back many, many years ago on teleseminars, quote, selling on teleseminars. Before that, I spoke on more than 2,500 stages worldwide in seminars, keynote addresses, et cetera. And it, we migrated from that to teleseminars, then to webinars. I remember having a go-to-meeting account that was $99 for the 1,000 people, which now costs you hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month for that same kind of account. So that tells you how, to, how, far, how far that back was. But it requires a paradigm shift because like Jay and I know back in, what, 2011, I did over 300 webinars that year, what we're now calling virtual roadshows, right? You're just making your pitch on, in a virtual environment. And we were closing deals, selling product, taking money um, on programs, coaching, advisory, consulting services, all sorts of things, and teaching a lot of other people how to do that. It's interesting that the capital markets, maybe not just now catching up on it, but having are being forced to catch up and to take that. And so it's really exciting. We're working with WealthForge as our um, platform, and they're very much a technology-driven platform for our managing broker-dealer process with Issue 6. I know WealthForge. It's a great company. Yeah. Great yeah, and we actually had Mike Roman from WealthForge on the DealFlow show, so I don't know when these will come out, in what order, but he may be before or after you in one of these episodes. But, you know, it's, it's seeing all of the technology pieces fall in place. But I want to step back just a second because you were talking about the importance, you said, of when we were talking about the characteristics of a deal, the importance of that entrepreneur or the sponsor to be able to pull together the C-suite. And when you were talking about... SPACs earlier, if you're talking about a blank check company, my assumption is that a lot is riding on the confidence in that C-suite, in that 
because that's all you really have in the beginning, right? Right, right. The team behind it. But, you know, that te- it's a, that's a different situation, right? Because they're not trying to execute on a particular business. They're not trying to create a cure for COVID or, or be a pharmaceutical company. What they're doing is two things. Number one, they need to be able to have the contacts to locate. So the bankers and, and broker-dealers involved will help with that aspect. But to the contacts to locate valuable businesses, right, that, that will hopefully bring extra value, but they also have to have the ability to do proper due diligence. Now, you can hire out third parties for in-depth due diligence, right? Pharma, bankers do it all the time. They have pharmaceutical companies or pharmaceutical people that will do the due diligence on the pharma side of a deal, right? They, they, all the bankers don't necessarily understand all of that. But, but you know, you need to be able to, to uh, be able to do the due diligence and you also need to be able to negotiate a, dis, a, a decent deal, right? You need to understand valuations and, and again, you have advisors to help you, but, but ultimately it's not the people that put this back together that are going to run the business and make it a, a successful business, right? They're just trying to get a, 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 a mer- an M&A transaction completed. That's what they're doing. When I think about a deal maker, the ultimate consumer of this show and the content that come, results from it, I think negotiator. You use that term just now, negotiating. When you go to the negotiating table, whether you're sitting at the table with a team, which is likely, um, what are some of the important factors to get that deal across the finish line? Because it truly is going to be some form of a give and take. Um, The best negotiators, what have you seen over the years as the characteristics of those best deal makers? Well, I mean, look, I'm generally representing companies or issuers, as you call them, right? So right from the beginning on the issuer side, you're negotiating with your underwriter. And and the things that you want to look at with your underwriter is what are their tail periods, meaning how long can they continue to collect a commission based on introductions that they've made after the the deal is closed? And, 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 And I say after the deal is closed, you want to make sure that they only have a tail if they can close the deal. They or say a short tail if they've made an introduction and a deal doesn't close, and then after uh, you know that 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 investor decides they want to invest. What are their rights of first refusal? So a lot of bankers that, that it's very important to them that they have an opportunity to have a right of first re- refusal for any deal that that follows within say twelve months. Some will try to ask for more than that right? So you want maybe carve-outs from that right of first refusal. If the CEO brings in a relationship that he's had or friends and family or other other relationships that they have to do a follow-on offering after you close a deal with a banker, well, you know, you don't want to have to pay that banker a commission on that deal or or give the banker a right to, to represent anybody on that deal because it's the CEO's relationship. So you're, it's called ROFRs, right? Ro- rights of first refusal. You want to make sure that a banker only has a rofer if they've been successful in the, in, the, in the raise that they were hired for. You don't want to have to give them rights of first refusal and their abilities to hold up a second deal if they were never successful in the first deal. And of course, fees. 
FINRA does regulate uh, public offering fees, but they don't regulate private offering fees. And there can be a lot of hidden fees. I mean, you're always paying the banker's expenses. Are they accountable or non-accountable? You know, so you always want to look at the fees. Um, and so, you know, that does, it starts a lot with what you're negotiating in your engagement letter or your terms with your banker, right? So that's a big part of it. And then valuation, you know, it's always, it's a give and take. Like everybody, you know, CEO-itis, right? Everybody, everybody thinks their company is worth more, right? But at the end of the day, you know, sometimes the banker is finding that they can, they having trouble placing a deal. And so they're going to try to push down that, that valuation. So you want to, you want to work on, you know, that's always a negotiation, finding a proper valuation and structure of the deal. What are you, what are you selling, right? So from a company's perspective, the best thing that they can sell is straight common stock. But from a banker's perspective, they want to sell a unit that has warrants. And how many warrants per share of common stock, right? Is it is it 50% warrant coverage, 100% warrant coverage, 200% warrant coverage? And what's the strike prices for those warrants? So it's always going to be above the IPO price or follow-on offering price, but how far above, right? Is it a 25% kicker or is it, you know, I find a lot of times, interestingly, I find that they'll price a deal and the warrant will the, the the warrant strike price will be really high and then the banker ends up going back to the company and saying look let's reprice those warrants because i think i can get them people to exercise if they're repriced to a lower price so that can happen quite often but you know there's a lot of things that you know that 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 you're working on and negotiating in a in a deal but you know you're also a team working together but it's mainly the relationship with your banker and the structure of the deal itself and valuation. And an M&A transaction, by the way, is completely different. So we have a very robust M&A practice. You know, um, our firm has done in the 20 years, uh, almost $2 billion in M&A transactions. And so there's a lot that needs to be negotiated in, an, in a pure M&A transaction. That's completely different, right, than a banker deal. There may or may not be a banker involved, but, but who your management is going to be and uh, how you're going to actually run operations and administration. And there's a lot of moving parts in an M&A transaction. We could talk for a couple hours on that alone. So, you know, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, if you're listening to the show or watching the show, you're listening to The Deal Flow Show. You can get more episodes and also subscribe or follow us for future episodes at thedealflowshow.com. Our guest today is Laura Anthony from Anthony LG. And uh, Paul, let's take it to the next step. Let's go. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts in the whole process. What do you do if there's a failure in it and how do you deal with that? Oh, there's kinks in every deal, you know, so, and, and how you resolve it runs the gamut. You may take a step back and renegotiate, a deal could fall apart, you might redo a deal. I mean, I had, I'm not going to mention the client, but we had a situation recently, and if anybody from that client's listening, they're going to know I'm talking about them or the banker, but we had a situation where it was a CMPO, which is a confidentially marketed uh, overnight public offering. And that's a takedown off of a shelf registration statement. And literally you're negotiating and preparing paperwork when ultimately a one of these deals closes, you've prepared all the paperwork and, the, and it closes overnight and the market finds out about it the next morning. And we were all set to close. It was uh, midday Sunday and we were all set to close Monday morning. And we found out that 
there was a, there was a, a hiccup, right? It has to, it's a regulatory hiccup, and it had to do with one of the investors and in something called Regulation M, uh, which is again, you know, like getting very technical. But we had to restructure the deal literally overnight, and my team and underwriters counsel team worked all through the night. Right, they started at about uh, eight o'clock on the on at night, and we they literally worked throughout the whole night. I had two people on my side; they had two people on their side, and the deal closed at eight o'clock the next morning with a big stack of paperwork that had to have been redone overnight. That's great. Can you share something with our audience that otherwise people wouldn't know about you? Um, otherwise, wouldn't know about me. <laughs> I play a lot of tennis. <laughs> I sit on the board of directors of the uh, South Florida division of the Red, American Red Cross. Um, you know, that's, I work a lot. I think people do know that about me. Wonderful. Our audience likes to give back as we wrap it up here on the Deal Flow Show on behalf of myself and Paul Nicolini. What we would like to do is allow our audience to give back or to be able to connect. What would be the best way uh, for someone to connect with you and your firm and also what are the kind of people that you would love to hear from that would help y'all's firm move uh, to the next level or to be able to do more deals um, to reach more people to be able to serve more people yeah so the best way I would say is email and that's l anthony at anthony p l l c dot com p like paul llc dot com and uh, well, the kind of business, the kind of people I'd like to hear from are either existing public companies that are looking to make a change in council, or operating businesses that are looking to either go public or engage in a capital markets transaction of some sort, or do an M&A deal. You know, so those are the ideal people I would like to hear from. As we wrap things up, one final tip: dealmakers going to the deal table. What's one piece of wisdom or advice is just hammered out on the anvil of experience for you and you go, you know what, this is what you need in your arsenal. What would you say to the, the person that's just about to go back to or maybe the first time to the deal table? Okay, that, that's a good question. Uh, I would say uh, uh, be prepared when you go to the table, be prepared, know your numbers, know your burn rates, Know your, if you're a company or an entrepreneur, know your burn rates, know your projections, know, uh, know what you can accomplish realistically, know your valuation, know what valuations you've raised money at in the past, and, uh, and be very prepared. Uh, also be calm and don't lie. I mean, you know, don't, don't be, try to be too slick. People recognize a, a liar or somebody that's just winging it, you know, very easily. Excellent. Paul Nicolini, I'm JP Maroney. This is The Deal Flow Show. And thanks again to our special guest on this episode, Laura Anthony from Anthony LG out of South Florida. And uh, again, you can reach her at their website or through the email that she gave out. Uh, if you're watching the show or listening to the show, you can get more episodes and subscribe for future episodes at thedealflowshow.com. We should be able to put something up here across the screen as well. On behalf of myself and the Harbor City team, the Deal Flow Show team, we'll see you in another episode very, very soon. Take care. Thank you, Bob. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.